This is The Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. And in this episode, anti-apartheid icon Peter Hain. The BBC's Radio 4 is known among the British as its nation's cerebral option. This well-deserved reputation comes from decades of delivering consistently high-quality content. What follows is an excellent example of the standards it sets. Since 2013, British historian Peter Hennessy has picked four of his country's highest-profile politicians for in-depth interviews that explore their formative influences, experiences and impressions of people that they had known. The final interview of Series 7 was with South African-raised anti-apartheid icon Lord Peter Hain. Aired last month, the interview provides unique insights into Hain, whose family were ejected from their homeland because of their political activism. Although best known for leading the sports boycott against white South Africa, Hain also became a British Member of Parliament for 24 years, served in the cabinets of two Prime Ministers, and was knighted after his retirement in 2015. That peerage opened the door for Haynes' participation in the House of Lords, where his contribution to his former homeland has been immense. This included exposing the Guptas, Bell Pottinger, and a list of multinational companies which participated in the recent pillage of state capture. So here, with kind permission of the BBC, are the two Peters, Hennessy and Hain. With me today is Peter Hain, Lord Hain of Neath, whose radical formation as a boy and a young man took place in the intense crucible of South African apartheid before his family were exiled to Britain in 1966. For all his later rise to senior positions in both the Blair and Brown cabinets, he has a vivid place in the national collective memory as the young man who led the successful opposition to the planned South African cricket tour of England in 1970. Peter, welcome. Thank you very much. Tell me about your formation and your childhood. You were born in 1950 in Nairobi, in what we then call Kenya, because it was still a British colony. Who were your parents and why were they in Kenya? My birth in Nairobi was uh, an accident in a way. My dad's first job on graduating from university in Johannesburg was to work as an architect in Nairobi, and I happened to arrive. My mum was pregnant with me flying up in an old Dakota from Pretoria to Nairobi. And we spent a bit of time there. And then when I was a tiny toddler, they drove all the way back down the length of Africa in a rickety old Lancia Aprilia car with the tires constantly getting punctured, with uh, springs breaking, and it was a real adventure. And it was part of an extraordinary upbringing. They were, I think, for me and not just for me, examples of fantastic parents who were great fun, very disciplinarian, but also a joy to be with, and I was enormously proud of them. And so it was an unusual upbringing that, on the one hand, my dad could be teaching me how to play cricket, and then we faced an early morning raid from the special branch as young South African anti-apartheid activists with no record of politics of that kind in their hinterland on either side, my mum's side or my dad's side, suddenly found themselves drawn into taking a stand. 
against the evil of apartheid and showed enormous courage and great self-sacrifice and I think were an example of people whose sense of duty propelled them increasingly to do the thing that they thought was the right thing to do rather than for great ideological reasons. Now, they obviously shaped you and triggered your sense of injustice, acute sense of injustice at apartheid, but what had triggered theirs? You know, I wrote a book a few years ago called Ad and Wall, nicknames for Adelaide and Walter Hayne, Values, Duty and Sacrifice in Apartheid South Africa, and I tried to answer that question, and I asked them, and they couldn't answer it themselves. Events, they said they just felt that they needed to do things and support people, and things got worse and worse for them. So initially, the police were raiding our house in the early 1960s. One of my earliest memories was being woken up, finding special branch officers in the bedroom I shared with my brother, aged about 10. A year later, aged 11, woken up in the early hours to be told that my mum and dad had been jailed for supporting Nelson Mandela's defiance campaign. They were released without charge after two weeks because the police couldn't find incriminating evidence against them, which actually was a draft leaflet that they'd been in a black township to share with comrades that my mum had chewed up and spat out rather than reveal to the... The comrades being the South African Liberal Party. They were members of the, the South African Liberal Party, which at that time was the only legal non-racial party. The Progressive Party of Helen Sussman believed in a qualified franchise. That's to say, based on property. It was not universal, one person, one vote. And although I have great admiration for Helen, my mum and dad's liberalism was very radical and very committed to universal franchise. The early 60s was an extraordinary time because the British Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, outraged the South African Parliament with his wind of change speech in Cape Town in 1960, and then there's the Sharpeville massacre very shortly afterwards, terrible carnage, when you were 10 years old, I think. It is an extraordinary formation, Peter, compared to most radical British politicians, however strongly people feel injustice, to be living every hour of every day with what you were seeing and hearing. None of my school friends with whom I played had anything like that experience. We were unique in Pretoria, the citadel, the capital of apartheid, especially at that time in the grim early 60s, where the police state was ubiquitous and apartheid laws there went into every nook and cranny of society from sport to sex. It was an extraordinary experience. So politics and radical politics was in my DNA in a way. And it was life and death politics. I mean, people were literally dying friends were were disappearing being assassinated and tortured and so on it was difficult on the one hand and yet my mum and dad had this extraordinary ability to be abnormal compared with all their peers and relatives but at the same time to be normal with their kids and their kids friends playing with us officiating and marshalling at our bike races in our garden and things like this they were a great model for how you should behave as parents. There's an extraordinary searing experience which you vividly recall in your memoir of a family friend, John Harris, who was involved in the bomb on the Johannesburg Railway Station being executed. Your great family friends. And at the age of 15, you had to do a reading next to his coffin. He'd only been executed a few hours earlier because I think the authorities wouldn't let your father speak. Now, that is a, it's an extraordinarily searing experience for anybody at any age but for, for a 15 year old schoolboy, it must have been amazing 
Yes, it was, and it was not something I'd ever expected to do. I was quite a private, shy young boy, and uh, people may find that surprising now. But the night before John Harris's execution, we realized that my dad, who was banned at the time, was denied permission to read the funeral address and officiate in a way. There was nobody to do it. And I sort of offered, I didn't expect them to say, and his widow Anne to say, yes, we'd like you to do it, that would be lovely, Peter. But the whole experience with John Harris was fundamental to us and determined our future and helped propel us into exile. I, sh- I think we should point out that you were not in favour of direct action that involved bombing and so on, but it was family friendship that was the basis of this. I always admire my mother and father for this as well. They completely opposed John Harris's decision to plant a bomb on Johannesburg railway station, although he'd intended it out of desperation, and there were many young white radicals, including liberals like him, who felt the same way, out of desperation that all the opposition had been closed down. Nelson Mandela was in prison. The high command of the ANC had been arrested. The ANC itself, the African National Congress, was illegal. John Harris felt he had to do something, and his chosen something was to plant a bomb on Johannesburg Railway Station to issue a 15-minute telephone warning explicitly to the police and to newspapers, and that was confirmed at his trial, to clear the concourse. He hadn't meant to kill anybody. But nevertheless, he did, because they deliberately ignored his warning. It served their interests to actually have that bomb go off and kill an old lady, maim a young, her young granddaughter, and injure many others. My mum and dad completely opposed the violent strategy that the African resistance movement, of which John Harris became a member, along with others of their friends who tried to recruit them, because they thought it would play into the hands of the state. My dad, who'd served in the Italian campaign in the Second World War with the South African army, had a, a real detestation of violence. But they stood by his widow, Anne, and tiny boy, David, who came to stay with us. And that increased the pressure on the family because we were vilified. They took a stand. They disagreed with what John had done, but they didn't want to desert his family. There's another family friend, I suppose you could call him that, uh, Alan Payton, the great author of Cry the Beloved Country. And you got to know him as a young man. And he said something to you which has stayed with you ever since, I think. Yes, I met him at his house, The Long View, above Durban, outside Durban, when my mum and dad were driving around during the state of emergency. And he made a huge impression on me. And he said something to me which stuck in this. I was only ten at the time. He said, don't be an all-or-nothing person, Peter. Be an all-or-something person. And that has guided me in my politics ever since, to do something rather than to try everything and achieve little, if anything. The circumstances became so bleak that the family decided to come to Britain and make your family home in Putney. We steamed out of Cape Town in March 1966, and I remember looking at Robben Island, and Nelson Mandela was, of course, in there at that time, and that made a huge impression on me. And then we arrived in Southampton on a grey drizzly April morning. What I didn't know 
was it was the day after the general election when Labour stormed to victory under Harold Wilson in a landslide, and there were Labour posters up on the the window of the friend of my parents who was putting us up. And I remember seeing television for the first time. So this was an awakening. And then the following weekend, my mum and dad went on a CND march, a campaign for nuclear disarmament march. And my brother and I, 16 and 14, went to see our team Chelsea play for the first time at Stamford Bridge. I think you were an engineer originally. You went to Imperial College and realised it wasn't for you. Then you came under the spell of the magical... Morris Peston at Queen Mary College in the East End of London and did economics and found your niche. The LSE turned me down, as I think too much of a radical threat by then, and Morris Peston and Trevor Smith enthusiastically welcomed me and I had a wonderful three years university degree there. You became a great public figure at a very young age because of protesting about the anticipated South African cricket tour of England in 1970. Now, where did the idea come from that this was a way of getting at the apartheid regime and that direct action involving the sacred green swords of the legendary English cricket grounds might be the way to do it? It was non-violent direct action and it was born out of the late 1960s ferment that I was sucked into as an 18-year-old becoming increasingly interested in politics, reading voraciously, going to anti-Vietnam War demonstrations, uh, reading about the sit-ins at Berkeley University in California and the LSE and reading about non-violent direct action in the Gandhian tradition. And I was frustrated, first of all, that white South African sports tours, and they were white South Africans, they were called South Africa, but they were never South Africa. They only became so after, after the transformation. As a sports-mad young white South African, I knew how important sport was to the white apartheid elite. It was so critical to their whole morale. Apartheid was shunned across the world, but they were fated... The mighty Springboks were at Twickenham, or the cricket team was at Lords. And over the years, the anti-apartheid movement had admirably protested outside Lords or Twickenham, but to no effect. I came up with the idea of deploying non-violent direct action by running on the pitches and physically stopping the matches. And we started to do that, me and a few of my friends in the Young Liberals, in the summer of 1969. And it escalated to the point where... The Stop the 70 Tour campaign was launched in September 1969, although it was my idea. I never expected to be the leader of it until others propelled me into that role. And I found myself suddenly at age 19 being interviewed on every radio and television program on the front pages and the sports pages of the newspapers and becoming a, a notorious national figure <laughs> uh, hated by people on the right of politics and most sports fans who didn't understand what we were doing wrecking their sport by running on the pitch at Twickenham and Murrayfield and Cardiff Arms Park and Swansea and so on, and stopping the mighty Springboks who toured in 69-70. You were different as student protesters went, though, because you were a very earnest young man. You were very trim and tidy, had roll-neck sweaters, very polite, <laughs> not hair suit at all. no. I wasn't. You, I very, you were a very serious young man, weren't you? <laughs> I suppose I'm probably a, it could be regarded as a bit of a boring young bloke as well. <laughs> no, I, mean, I wouldn't I, quite put it like that. <laughs> I mean, I was, I'm afraid I was not into the, the late 60s sex, drugs and rock and roll scene. I was more interested in the radical politics, in fact, it absorbed my life. 
Yeah, I suppose I was pretty earnest and dedicated. My dad particularly always said to me, and I had read Nelson Mandela's great aphorism about making a difference. The point, he said, to paraphrase, is not just to be there as a person, it's to make a difference. And I always tried to make a difference. Trade was going on, arms deals were going on, we were doing our best to fight that, but that's really difficult stuff. Whereas here, we could strike a blow against apartheid, which proved seminal in that that year in South Africa, white South Africa never toured in cricket and rugby again to Britain, and very shortly afterwards was kicked out by Australia and subsequently New Zealand after similar campaigns. White South Africa found herself isolated from world sport, which they craved. And so it was an enormously successful campaign, as Nelson Mandela pointed out when I first met him in 1991. And he said to me, that campaign, the thing about it was we were on Robben Island in a news blackout then. We didn't know about the man on the moon in 1969, a lot of other world events. But their warders were such fanatical Springbok fans that they vented their fury at the demonstrations and the disruption on Mandela and his comrades, not realizing they were communicating something absolutely precious, that there were thousands of people outside fighting for them. Why did your radicalism go down young liberal channels? Because you've always had a socialistic element in your makeup, haven't you? Yes, when I formed my ideas in the sort of 68, 69, 70 period, I believed I was a libertarian socialist, not state control and everything organized from the top, but from the bottom upwards, as it were, industrial democracy rather than nationalization to simplify it. And the young liberals, when I first got involved and joined in late 67, early 68, were very radical. They would call themselves the Red Guards after the, you know, the Mao... 66 episode and they had a very flamboyant leadership that was very good at catching the headlines and they enthused me and that's why I joined them and got involved and eventually became a young liberal national chairman in 1971. Your family came under direct attack from the South African security forces with that letter bomb it's extraordinary your sister Sally was opening this parcel I think on the kitchen table and then suddenly you realised it was a bomb. I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? Yes, it happened exactly that way. There was a pile of campaign material. My younger sister, Sally, in June 1972, I was still living with my parents in Putney at their home, and suddenly, on the breakfast table, pulled out of a large envelope, was this contraption with terminals and wires constructed around a balsa wood base. And it turned out to be the kind of bomb that was assassinating anti-apartheid leaders worldwide. Ruth First, for example, a notable anti-apartheid leader whom I knew from London, was subsequently killed by exactly that kind of bomb. I was just very lucky that when Scotland Yard's IRA bomb squad came down, blink of an eyelid, it seemed, after we'd alerted the police to make it safe. They said it would have blown not just me, but the whole family and the house as well up, so I was very lucky indeed. Now, how did you get drawn into the Labour politics? I think your friend Neil Kinnock had something to do with it. Yes, by the mid-1970s, I was becoming increasingly dissatisfied in the young Liberals and the Liberal Party. I couldn't be a young Liberal forever. I was by... 1977 when I decided to join the Labour Party 27 and Neil Kinnock had been active in the anti-apartheid movement 
and had supported my appeal during my 1972 conspiracy trial. He'd been a Labour figure to support fundraising to help my defence. And so I went to him and said I was wanted to join the Labour Party and could he advise me because you know, I was a very well known then and I wasn't sure whether I'd be well received. Well, I was very radical and I was a socialist and had been, as you pointed out, since my formative years. I was nevertheless from the Liberals who were you know, bitter rivals and my entry was also encouraged by Tony Benn whom I went to see privately. They were, of course, Ben and Kenneth to end up bitter foes, but uh, they were both really encouraging and supportive to me, and uh, it was the best decision that I made. And you stand for Putney a couple of times, losing to David Mellor. What was it like cutting your teeth in electoral politics? Did you turn out to be good at it? You know, I never expected when I joined the Labour Party, and never wanted when I was in the Young Liberals, to be an MP. And... I was asked in Putney Labour Party, having been a member for a few years and campaigned very vigorously locally, to stand. And I got selected, much to my surprise. And then I found I really enjoyed it and loved the campaigning. Putney was notionally a marginal seat that we'd uh, lost in 1979. And I fought it again also during the high noon of Thatcherism in 1987 and lost again, despite running a magnificent campaign with hundreds of workers. And that's when my friends encouraged me, virtually instructed me, to seek a safe seat. And by a remarkable series of coincidences, it started with Michael Foote asking me to get involved in the selection for his own seat, which he was vacating and retiring from. Ebervale, yes. In, yes. But as a result of that... I met trade unionists, and one of them rang me up, sitting in my office in the Union of Post Office Workers, which I'd gone to work for as a research officer, having left university, rang me up and said, Peter, the selection in Neath is wide open. The MP surprisingly just announced the previous Friday evening that he's going to retire. You should go for it. This is 1990. Did you know much about Wales? You've fallen in love with Wales big time ever since. You're very eloquent about Wales. You love it. I do, But yes. did, how much did you know then when you were selected as a candidate for Neath? I didn't really know Wales or its culture, to be perfectly frank, so it was a very fast learning curve. But I absolutely loved it. And somebody said to me, a bit of a wag said to me, well, you may not be Welsh, Peter, but at least you're not bloody English. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't said with venom, by the way, but just with a, a, sort of a, a great deal of humour. And I just love the culture and the valleys... Uh, the Valley politics and, and got involved and actually was part of energising a local party that was just used to winning instead of campaigning for it. I treated it like a marginal seat, which actually, given that there was just six or seven months between me being selected and then suddenly a by-election appearing with the MP dying tragically, if I hadn't treated it as a marginal seat, down there every weekend from my job in London, campaigning and living in the constituency wherever I could and becoming known, I think I would have faced quite a difficulty in the subsequent uh, by-election, particularly from Plaid Cymru, who ran a very aggressive campaign. Your relationship with Tony Blair is, is very interesting. You've never entirely been part of one of us Blair Project, have you? No, I was never a Blairite. 
and uh, they didn't pretend that I was. They were a bit suspicious of me. But I really liked Tony Blair as a person, and he was very generous towards me. He knew I was not of his particular New Labour politics. I was more radical and independently minded and occasionally... It caused waves and some irritation to him by saying things where I disagreed. About taxation, for example. Yes. That's a radical, <laughs> radical views on higher taxes. Yes, yes I- indeed. I thought that the rich should pay more and middle uh, Britain was being taxed too highly. And I said that in a Nybevan lecture shortly after he'd appointed me leader of the, the House of Commons as well as Secretary of State for Wales because I'd been in the Cabinet then nearly a year. But Tony Blair was very good to work for. He was somebody who was very willing, although he ran a tight ship, a very Blairite kind of Praetorian guard around his mission, if he trusted you, he'd delegate to you and let you get on with it until you made a mistake. He was an easy person to work with. He was very visionary, very politically attuned, tragically over Iraq, made a decision to invade which uh, I supported as a cabinet minister because I believed the intelligence, as we all did at the time, it was shown to be completely wrong. And really, on that basis, we went to war and a lie, which I always regret. And it tarnished his own reputation. And I don't think the public ever forgave him for that. And yet, I was proud to be in that Labour government. I didn't think we were radical enough on some things. I, I thought Tony Blair neglected our, our base and our core traditional party members and values in that sense. And I think we paid a high price for it afterwards and in a way paved the way to Corbynism, but that's another story. But we did amazing things, bringing devolution, constitutional innovation, a Freedom of Information Act, a Human Rights Act, doubling spending on the National Health Service, rescuing public services and railways that, frankly, were on their last legs when we took power in 1997. A statutory minimum wage, the list goes on and on. And I'm enormously proud of what we achieved and that I was able to be a minister in his government achieving it. I think one particular pleasure of your ministerial life, a singular pleasure really, is being made Minister for Africa in the Foreign Office. I think you relished every minute, didn't you? I did. You were the last district commissioner we sent. (laughs) I was the only African-born British minister for Africa that there's ever been. And Africa was a kind of third-order issue in the Foreign Office, a sort of lexicon for understandable reasons. You know, the Middle East and others were higher up. But I really prioritised Africa and loved it. And, of course, going back to South Africa as Minister for Africa and being fated at my old school and speaking at Pretoria Boys Hyde, that's quite emotional even recalling it to a, a mixed set of boys in the school assembly. When I was there, it was whites only by law. Uh, watching them play sport, mixed sport, that was not permitted. I was never allowed to play sport with or against anybody who wasn't white. So it was profoundly moving. And I decided also, and it was the old Alan Payton, Nelson Mandela, you know, do something and make a difference, which were my watchwords. I decided to focus on arms dealers flying in arms and getting paid in blood diamonds to Angola and Sierra Leone where we had British forces and the Democratic Republic of Congo because I was receiving intelligence on my desk every day virtually saying we knew what they were doing we were tracking their planes and all the rest of it 
And we were doing nothing. And I, I, I sort of had an argument with senior mandarins in the foreign office and with the Secret Intelligence Service and with GCHQ and said, look, you know, we've got to do something. This is killing people. In fact, these arms were being flown into Liberia, smuggled across the border and being used to shoot at our squaddies. And we were doing nothing. Now, there was a very good argument, which is you don't want to compromise your sources. And British intelligence has a pretty long reach, and I got very close to it and worked closely with them and, you know, applaud and admired them. But I, anyway, a long battle that took several months, I persuaded them to allow me to use the information and via a planted question in Foreign Office Questions in early 2000, named these armed dealers for the first time putting a lot of them out of business. They went absolutely ape about it and tried to sue me. Well, they, you can't on using parliamentary privilege, which I was careful to do. And I particularly, I named Victor Boot, a former KGB agent, as the merchant of death because he was the primary arms runner. But that intervention led eventually to him being arrested and he's in jail. And there are books about him called The Merchant of Death and I think a television program the same. So it was that. And then the other occasion where I'm proud I made a difference, though it left me uncomfortable as well, is I knew British policy had pretty well neglected Angola. I thought Angola was, had the enormous potential to rejuvenate Africa. It's immensely rich in natural resources from food to minerals. And there was this bitter civil war where the rebel UNITA army led by Jonas Savimbi, and we knew where he was, but the Angolan army didn't. And after a long battle, I persuaded both the intelligence services and foreign office officials that I would pass the information to the Angolan army. They found him and they killed him, and as I knew would happen, the civil war ended. And Angola, many years later, because there was a corrupt governing elite at the time, is now beginning to show its real potential. So my watchword was making a difference, and I think those examples were ones where it did. Now, we've talked briefly about Iraq. It's obviously left a deep scar on you, Peter, in the way it has on many who are in that cabinet who went along with the decision on the basis of the intelligence as presented. But you had considerable pressure from your parents about that and Nelson Mandela picked up the phone to you didn't he? What did he say? By that stage I had become close friends with Nelson Mandela it was one of the privileges I had to be greeted by him when I'd gone back as Africa Minister. Return of the prodigal son he told me in the, the waiting media and he phoned me whereas he'd always been courteous and I never heard a bad thing said about anybody except Robert Mugabe. But he phoned me and it was as if he was breathing fire on the phone to say, you must tell Tony Blair, I'll try to get through to him, that this Iraq, and this was on the eve of the invasion, this is going to damage Tony and damage you all. You're doing great work. He's doing fantastic work across the world and in Africa. But this is going to finish him. And my mum and dad took the same view. My dad actually drafted a memorandum to me, which was uncannily prescient. And uh, he was right, and Mandela were right, and I, I was wrong. Is that your greatest single regret in your political life? 
Yes, in geopolitical terms, undoubtedly, as part of a collective cabinet, unlike Robin Cook, my, my friend, who resigned over it. No, I was wrong over it. My greatest regret, actually, was standing for the deputy leadership of the Labour Party in 2007. I'd been encouraged to do so, almost prompted to do so, by trade unionists and MPs and others. I did stand. I did badly. And uh, people who said they supported me actually encouraged me to stand, then went for other people. That's politics. But the worst thing about it was becoming embroiled in a, a thing to do with a failure to declare the donations that we'd received, some of them. £100,000 were properly declared. For your campaign, In yes. my campaign to be deputy leader, and I'd insisted they properly declared. And somehow we didn't declare a great chunk of the other donations. Not a penny went missing, another, not a penny came to me. But as a result of that, the Electoral Commission unaccountably decided to, they the regulators, and they play an important role, and it's important the rules are followed. And I went to them, and I shocked myself. I said I've discovered, to my horror, some months later, by now I was Secretary of State for Work and Pensions under Gordon Brown, that we hadn't declared all our donations. I went to them and I said... We haven't declared them. These are the ones we haven't declared, but I don't know about the others. And I uncovered after painstaking work, which took weeks and weeks and weeks, lots of other unreported donations. And then they referred me to the police. And I had to resign. And the police investigated and referred it to the Director of Public Prosecutions, who found I wasn't responsible anyway. And you were able to come law. back into office. And I was able to come back into office. Yeah. But it really... They say all political careers end in failure. Well, mine didn't as it happened, but it nearly did. And it left a really unpleasant taste. I've been accused of lots of things politically for the views I, I held and things I did, like stopping the 1970 cricket tour, but never for sort of lack of integrity. When you've spoken about that episode in the past, you've been quite interesting in describing yourself as still a bit of an outsider in Labour politics. Insider-outsider is the theme of your, of your memoir. Yeah, well, yes. Yes. And, but this was an example of perhaps still being seen as an outsider because you did much more poorly than anybody would have expected in that ballot. Yes, I think it was. And I suppose coming from outside Britain and coming from outside British politics and yet becoming an insider, you know, a member of the Privy Council, a uh, Secretary of State, serving in the Cabinet for seven years and the government as a whole for 12, being entrusted with some of the state's most precious secrets on, by the intelligence services, who'd kept an eye on me as a young anti-apartheid activist, by the way, the head of MI5 came to confess to me when I was looking into it as a foreign office minister. And, and yet, I suppose I always saw and see British life in a different way for somebody like you born in Britain. For a start, I'm not part of the class system. Yeah. Everybody in Britain is born into the class system. And, brand, and branded on the tongue. And your, your tongue and accent are very distinctive, but they're not part of the class structure. <laughs> they are not, no. <laughs> so I suppose I, I viewed things as an outsider, and, and perhaps in that election was seen as a bit of an outsider as well. I think, as an outside observer of your career, the most extraordinary moment, or what's certainly one of them, the most productive, is when you get Northern Ireland onto a new trajectory after the elections which produce the Sinn Féin, DUP... Um, executive, the St Andrews Agreement. Now that's extraordinary, getting Ian Paisley to sit down with Adams and McGuinness 
and to actually pull off that deal. That was extraordinary at the time, but it still seems remarkably extraordinary looking back on it. Now, what was the key? Was your outsider them a help there? Because they knew you had form. It was in a different way to what I expected. And, of course, it happened after years of my predecessors as Secretary of State and, of course, Tony Blair's you know, game-changing Good Friday Agreement and all the work that had gone on. But I was found myself in the position dealing with the top dogs being the DUP and Sinn Féin, Ian Paisley and Jerry Adams, Martin McGuinness. And Ian Paisley and I couldn't have been more different. I'm a on-the-left radical. Ian Paisley was on the right, and we'd had disagreements on Northern Ireland as well over, over the years. And yet we became really close friends. And I, I remember having a, his 80th birthday, I invited him and the whole Paisley clan, you know, there were grandkids running around and under the banqueting table to dinner to celebrate his 80th birthday. In Hill, Hillsborough Castle. At Hillsborough Castle, yeah. the official uh, residence of the Secretary of State, where famous summits took place. And so building that relationship with him, getting to know him, understanding him, the same time Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness, they were both amongst the most professional negotiators I've ever come across, uh, and managing to bring them together involved taking risks, threatening to introduce water charges, threatening to bring the political class down by withdrawing their salaries and the funding for their staff. They weren't doing their jobs, I said to the public in Northern Ireland. Because it's direct rule again, yes. Because it was direct rule and the assembly was suspended. And so there were risks, because if you did bring the political class down, some of my predecessors were really worried about it. But I knew you had to take risks, because this was... You know, politics, I learned, revolves around timing. Sometimes things come together at particular times, like the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 and the end of the Cold War. And by the way, I'd also experienced that in South Africa, the release of Mandela by de Klerk and that particular conjunction of forces. And I felt this was a moment with Tony Blair as Prime Minister, Bertie Ahern as Taoiseach, the two of them really close, and Ian Paisley maybe fulfilling his destiny, and Adams and McGuinness, you know, getting into the, the latter stages of their political careers. This was the moment you did it or you didn't. If we'd missed that, I don't know that it would have come round again. And it was the most fulfilling thing that I was able to help achieve. You've talked about your relationship with Tony Blair and his qualities. What about Gordon Brown, one of the most complicated and fascinating figures of recent British politics? You managed to get on with him pretty well as, as well. You weren't part of the Civil War the TBGB civil war, were you? I wasn't. I was neither a Brownite nor a Blairite. And um, for that reason, Gordon Brown, in some respects, was a bit wary of me. And his inner clique were, too. Because Gordon, unfortunately, I think he's a giant of a figure and an immensely values-based person of great stature. And who'd been, by the way, our Edinburgh organiser for the Stop the 72 campaign back in 1969-70, is somebody, unlike Tony Blair, who was much more comfortable in his own skin and secure as an individual, Gordon Brown was a towering figure, an enormous brain, very well read, an ability to talk and understand the history of the labour movement in Britain in a unique way, as he still does. And I enormously admired him and liked him as a person. But he didn't really delegate properly and trust people. 
And when you're Prime Minister, and it was his own tragedy that as Prime Minister, a job that he'd coveted for so long, it's such a big job. You've got to have people around you, and Tony Blair had the Alistair Campbells and the Sally Morgans and above all the Jonathan Powells. You could ring them up and you could say, what does Tony think about this idea? They'd either tell you straight away as a cabinet minister or a minister, or go away and find out and come straight back to you. Gordon Brown's inner circle was not like that at all. And yet I think his finest hour was rescuing Britain, and in some cases, though people parried it at the time, rescuing the world from the global financial crisis by insisting that the G20 adopted a Keynesian demand management, public investment-led recovery to drag the world out of this private sector banking collapse and stop it plunging from recession into depression. And he did the same with the British economy. You've ended up, as so many cabinet ministers do in the Valhalla for cabinet ministers, the House of Lords, and I get the impression you rather relish it. You come a lot, you talk a lot in a good way, and yet you've been frightfully rude about the House of Lords in the past. There was a time when you wanted to put a match to it. Have you changed your mind? I never wanted to put a match to it, but when Adam Miliband, out of the blue, asked me to go to the Lords, I said, but I don't agree with the place. I think it should be elected. To which his reply was, that's why I want you there. As Prime Minister, I want to reform it. So that's why I went, in a way. Of course, he didn't become Prime Minister. I think it should be at least 80% elected, representing the whole of the country properly, and 20% appointed. I am struck at the level of expertise there. The quality of the debate and the contributions are of a far higher nature to the House of Commons, having spent a quarter of a century as an MP. So, you know, I think it performs an admirable role. And yes, I have been active particularly on my concern about the future of the Irish border on the Brexit crisis and in using the Lords and two examples of parliamentary privilege, one to expose President Zuma of South Africa and the Gupta brothers and the other to name Sir Philip Green. Did you ever want to be Prime Minister? You know, (laughs) in standing for Deputy Leader, I'd hoped maybe to become Deputy Prime Minister, but I didn't seriously think that anybody from my background could do that job. And seeing it at close quarters, particularly under Tony Blair, and also the terrible pressures Gordon Brown went under during the financial crisis, I mean, it's a huge job. And I'm not sure I would have risen to that. But I am immensely privileged and grateful to have had the chance to contribute in government and to make a difference. If you had become Prime Minister, what would you have done on day one? I would have declared a climate change emergency and ordered the building of the seven barrage because I think climate change is such a gigantic threat to humankind. And I say the seven barrage because it is this vast natural energy generator through tidal power, which is lunar orientated, of course, so it's predictable. It can become baseload as well, equivalent to at least two nuclear power stations. It's a vast untapped resource. What trace do you think you'll leave on history? Well, I suppose uh, two sons and seven grandchildren so far and over 20 books. I hope people might remember me as somebody who took a stand on principle even when it was unpopular to do so and tried to make a difference. If I could give you one last reform, wave a magic wand for you, what would it be? To establish a national care service to parallel the National Health Service. The, tre- the chronic uh, scandal, and it's almost criminal, of 
elderly care. And my wife Elizabeth and I have experienced this recently uh, ourselves, personally. You know, just neglecting this. We can't continue to do so. And it cannot be resolved by private means alone. We've all got to pay more taxes and establish a proper national care service. Peter Hayne, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. That was historian Peter Hennessy with Lord Peter Hayne. The final in the seventh series of his interviews with leading British politicians. This interview was aired on August the 19th and is rebroadcast with permission of the BBC. This has been The Rational Perspective. Until the next time, cheerio.